You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Good day, everybody. Randy Bolander here on the Third Cup of Coffee as we have for you part four of our Voices podcast. Kelsey spoke at the bridge on Sunday and I absolutely loved it. She is my favorite preacher. We were uh, laughing earlier that 33 years ago, maybe this weekend, maybe next weekend, not quite sure the exact date, 33 years ago, we went on our second date and uh, it was a church service. She preached. No kidding. And here we are 33 years later. Amazing. Anyway, hope you enjoy it. Next week, I will be back in the saddle. My teaching break's over, and I am looking forward to getting back at it. But it has been wonderful to uh, have a little time to rest, let my brain spool down, and hear from some of the other voices at the bridge. Hope you've enjoyed it. Here's Kelsey. Well, this morning, I want to uh, share... Uh, a passage of scripture that I've been pondering really all year uh, because of an encounter I had with the Lord on the 1st of January this year. And I, I just, I felt like I wanted to share it for some time and this just seemed to be the right time. And so I just want to bring you into my processing so we can just, this can just be a living room. We can just process together, all right? So back in 2020, I think we were all getting to the end of 2020 saying, Lord, we need a word from you. This has been a year of all years, and I personally was saying, I have got to hear from you. And I have this friend, you all probably know Janet Peterson, and every year Janet prays for a word. Like she doesn't just ask on December 31st like I did. She takes months and really mulls this over with the Lord. What is my word from you, God, for this next season, for this next year? And so, you know, the end of the year, December 30th, I just thought, I need to do the same thing. And so New Year's Eve, we had a great little prayer meeting on Zoom. Hate Zoom. Love Zoom. Love love the technology. Just But we had this prayer meeting on Zoom, which was lovely. And I said, Lord, I've got to have a word from you going into this next year. I need a word from the Lord. And I went to bed. I remember laying my head on the pillow going, I don't have it, God, but I need it. I need you to speak to me before I get up in the morning. So I know the word of the Lord for 2021. And in the middle of the night, do you guys remember we had an ice storm? You remember that? Well, I was awakened in the middle of the night by the ice clinking against my windows. And I I just, that sound, it was so almost magical, you know, just clink, 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 clink. And I wake up and I look at my clock. Do you guys do that? Just like groggily, what time is it? And it's 4.18 in the morning. And as I look at my clock or my phone and see 4.18, Immediately, I have this internal whisper of the Holy Spirit. I recognize it's Holy Spirit speaking. And I hear Luke 4.18, it's your word. And I see, I'm wide awake, so it's not a dream, but I see the face of Paul Cain, like kind of flash before me. Paul Cain, for those of you who don't know, is a remarkable man of God, not perfect, but he was a prophetic man. He's no longer alive, but I see his face. And I hear Luke 4.18, and I know that that is the word that I am supposed to lean into for 2021. And now I'm wide awake, (laughs) and I'm thinking, Lord, you gave me the word. What does it mean? And so I just want, want to share with you why it's significant that God would speak that to me in the middle of the night on January 1st. I want to look at that passage, and then I want to look at our response. Like if the Lord is speaking that, what's our response, okay? So why this is significant to me in the middle of the night that God would speak this is, number one, I see Paul Cain. So Paul Cain, for those of you who don't know, well, Joel Richardson talked about the ministry of Paul Cain a few weeks ago when he was here speaking, and he talked about this man's really remarkable prophetic gift over decades in the body of Christ. 
and he would minister prophetically. He would minister the word of the Lord. Near the end of his life, you know, he, he, he got a little messy. We all get messy. And he leaned into restoration. Perfect, no, but truly a prophetic, godly man. And here's the cool story. This, this is a crazy story, actually. So Paul Cain's mother, his, her name was Anna, and she was 105 when she died. And a few years before she died, or a few little while, I don't actually know how long, she told Paul, before I die, I'm going to, the Lord told me, I'm going to bless you with the most important, urgent word that I've ever given you. But I'm going to bless you with that before I die. And so soon after, I think, she goes into a coma for two months, completely unresponsive, and he's probably thinking, wait a minute, my mom, my mom said she was going to give me this word before she died, and now she's in a coma. And he, he calls Mike Bickle, I don't know, maybe the night before, and says, Mike, my mom's going to die tomorrow. I need you to come to the hospital with me. He's like, how do you know she's going to die tomorrow? <laughs> she's in a coma. He said, I need you to come to the hospital and just, just stay the night with me. Stay, stay with me uh, until she passes. And so... Mike Bickle and Paul Kane are in Anna Kane's hospital room. And, you know, there's this tender moment where Paul is by his mother's side, just caressing her hand. She's in a coma, and Mike's trying to stand back in the room. And all of a sudden, she wakes up completely wide awake, speaks something into her son's ear, and lays back down and dies. And Mike's looking at this digital clock. The doctors come in, and they're asking, well, what, what was the time of death? And he said, oh, I know. I, I was looking right at the clock. It, it was 418. And later they realized, well, it was, she died at 418 on April 18th. And what she spoke into Paul's ear that day was, Luke 418. That's the blessing of the Lord. So Luke 418 on 418, at 418, the Lord was highlighting this passage. And that was in 1990, so over 30 years ago, and the question is why? So that is a remarkable uh, little piece that we'll revisit in, in a few minutes. But the other thing was, you know, we were sitting around the table on the 2nd of January with some folks, Daniel and Carl, I think you guys might have been there, Sally was there, Maybe Fahagutu. I can't remember who all was there, but we were sitting around the table kind of pondering this. Like, what is the Lord saying? And I, I, I remember Sally saying, what does it mean to you, Kelsey? And I just knew it caused me to remember. It caused me to remember the days where we, uh, in the mid, mid to late 90s, our family was involved in revival. And I say revival, it's the only thing we knew. We knew we were praying for the glory of God. We knew we were praying for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And we heard about this place in Brownsville, Brownsville Assembly of God in Pensacola, Florida. And we were in our 20s and we said, we gotta go. It's 10 hours away, but we gotta go to this place. We, we heard, we're, we're hearing the stories that we only read about like in the Bible or in these revival books. And we start going. And, I remember the, the first time I went, I just remember seeing these, these ladies dance in worship. And we didn't do that at our church. And I remember thinking, God, I want to dance like them because they look so free. And I just had this longing that I wanted to be free like them. I wanted to worship that way so I could experience the Lord in this full way that I hadn't experienced before. And I remember going again and again and again to Florida. It was a 10-hour trek, and we went 18 times because we just couldn't get away from the ministry and power and presence of God that was in that place in those days. And I remember laying on the ground one time in response to well, really just the Holy Spirit. It wasn't even an altar call. I, I actually just went to the bathroom, and I came back in, and the power of God was so strong, I couldn't, I couldn't take another step. I just fell on the ground. And I just laid there. And I just felt the Holy Spirit saying, just repent. 
just get rid of everything. And I just remember, I mean, no minister preached this repentance message, but I laid on the ground and I repented for everything I could think of. And then when I couldn't think of anything, I'm like, just get it all, God. <laughs> just get it all. I don't even know what else there is. But I just felt the waves of God, waves of his glory and presence come over me. And I, this Luke 4.18 drove me to remember those days and long for that, that presence and power of God in our midst again. I want to experience that. And, and really that's why we even moved to Kansas City in 2003. We were chasing this reality that was described in Luke 4.18, which was Jesus preaching and, and talking about Isaiah 61. And we're going to get to that in a minute. But I, I was just zealous to know in January, why are you highlighting this again? Why are you hide it, highlighting Isaiah 61 and Luke 4.18? Because it's brought all that back for me, that longing, that ache for his glory. And then in April of, of this year, and we probably all know this, I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but the eyes of the entire body of Christ, it seems like, were turned to Luke 4.18 when uh, this, this giant prophet guy, and I say giant, be giant in the spirit, but like he's a really tall dude, Chris Reed, he comes to Kansas City. Nobody knows who he is. He pastors this little church in, I think, Illinois or Indiana. And yet he comes and he, he visits... Kansas City and, and with this riddle that he had been given a year before by the Lord. And the riddle was, when the prince shall pass, it'll be 418 at last. And Chris Reed comes to Mike Bickle in Kansas City and says, does that mean anything to you? Well, yeah, it kind of does. Luke 418, you know, we've been pondering that for 30 years. And then that afternoon, Prince Philip dies. I mean, we got to take note of these things. They're kind of weird, but we got to take note of these things. So why is the Lord highlighting this? And what is unique to now? And why is he speaking it to the, across the streams of the body of Christ, those who have ears to hear, I believe. So I'm compelled to bring our community into this storyline. And that's what I want to do today. I want to invite you into my questions because I've been asking a lot of questions all year long. And... I want to say, come into my curiosity. Let's figure this out together. Because it, it has to mean more than just waiting another decade for miracles to happen, right? It has to mean more than that. I mean, I believe miracles are going to come, but I think there's a response, an application. And how do we live differently in light of this passage, in light of the fact that God is highlighting this? How then shall we live, right? That's what I always want to ask. And I think that as we come together and maybe we take, take what I'm going to share here and then we take it around the table together and, and you know, break bread and, and just discuss it, I think we're going to tangibly work it out together and, and see the answers. So this morning I want to talk through the Luke 4.18 passage in context. What can we learn from it? From it and kind of see what our response is, but first I want to kind of look back at the voices that God has used just these last few weeks, because each and every one of the voices that were up here speaking kind of preached my life concept, you know, life verses of mine, and had a, such a profound impact on my heart, starting with Jeff, who preached on the Ancient of Days, the throne room, the, the reality around that, Daniel 7. I mean, your teaching cut off, and I'm really sorry. If you were watching it online, his teaching cut off like right in the middle, and we're all left like, what? And I just assure you, it wasn't censorship. It wasn't cancel culture. I don't think your Twitter is suspended. I think you're good. But gosh, it was so good, and it brought me back to how the book of Daniel really marked our lives and changed us. I remember just sitting in bed one night in Tennessee, reading the book of Daniel, and I just looked at Randy, because we were credentialed in this denomination that sort of maybe didn't look at it the same way we did. Or, and I just said to him, I'm reading the book of Daniel, and I said, I, I don't actually think it, it happens like they told us it was going to happen. 
And he's like, you're such a troublemaker. <laughs> like, could you not be such a troublemaker? I'm like, I don't know. I just think we maybe need to find more troublemakers. I'm not sure. But Daniel, man, that, that just so spoke to me. Sorry. Sorry, Lyle. I'll try not to do that. And then Rachel, you just continued on with that beauty realm from the heart of a worship pastor in Psalm 84, and it brought me back to that ache in my heart that I just long for the glory of God. I want to be a doorkeeper, your gatekeeper, you know, in the house of God, because better is one day than a thousand elsewhere. I mean, we all have that ache if we can just get quiet enough to recognize it, right? And I mean, it... it I just remember sitting there thinking of the days where the Lord drove me to this, where we, we lost both of my parents within three months of each other. They lived in our home. We, we brought them to, to Christ and, and then released them to glory pretty much. I remember laying in bed and you said, well, we got them across the finish line. And those were the days that God drove me to Psalm 84 because it's like, better is one day, God, with you than a thousand elsewhere. It's how we got through crushing grief, you know? And so I so identify with that, Rachel, and it was just so good for our community, for my heart. And then Sally, who's in Dallas, fist pump Sally in Dallas, she texted me this morning. She said, I can't wait to watch. Um, but just her speaking of that tangibility of truth and what God does when he remembers. He doesn't just think up something. He actually actively engages when he remembers. And it's so powerful to actually remember what God's done in our life. Do you ever do that? Just, I don't know, some days I'm just driving the carpool line at school and I'm like so tired. But I just think, Lord, thank you for your faithfulness. And then I just start recalling the faithfulness of God, and then all of a sudden I'm not tired anymore because I just had this Holy Spirit moment. There's power in the testimony and in remembering, and then it compels us to live differently, right? So awesome. So I want to actually kind of take the baton from Sally for just a minute in light of Luke 4.18 and peek back at that remember word. If you were here and heard her, she used that original language word, zakar, which is remember, but it's not just thinking it. It's like doing it, right? And there, the scholar, Chad Bird, he's a Hebrew scholar, and he says biblical remembering is a body activity. It's not merely a head activity. We're act actively doing something when we remember. So it's kind of like July 7th. So RB, what's July 7th? My wedding? Our wedding. Yes, our wedding. Good job. <laughs> our anniversary. And you know, with, with so, sometimes with so many kids, we don't get to experience that, those epic celebrations. I mean, sometimes we, <laughs> it's pitiful. It's not so pitiful. It's beautiful. We have like all these kids. That's epic. Our 20th anniversary. We always had these dreams of going, you know, somewhere epic. And our 20th anniversary, we actually spent in the hospital having Piper. Yeah, so that was pretty epic, right? Epic anniversary, epic 20th, yeah. So Daniel and Carla, how many years have you guys been married? 12, so in eight years, you could be doing this again. <laughs> epic, Daniel. <laughs> Maybe plan a trip, I don't know. <laughs> But you know, on July 7th, I don't want Randy to just be like, oh, I remember. No, I, I don't want him to just get to the end of the day and say, yeah, it was our anniversary. Isn't that cool? No, if he's not like showing up with a like flower, even if he picked it from the yard, I don't care. Or dinner, even if it's Chipotle, you know, in the park, because we've done that too. <laughs> I want something active, right? Because if, if he's just saying, yeah, I remembered, no, that's not flying, not flying with me, not going to fly with you either, right? So when's your anniversary? Well, I say, <laughs> no fly zone, that's right. <laughs> and so we want to be those people who remember his ways. Isaiah 64, 5 says, 
You meet him. Lord, you meet him who remembers his ways, your ways. God meets his people who don't just remember with their head, but are actively engaged in living out that word. Those are the people he meets, and we want to be that. Because when we don't remember him in his ways, we end up like Elijah in the cave, right? Like Sally said last week. And the Lord's like, what are you doing here? Why are you here? You just defeated Baal. You know, you just, Elijah and the prophets of Baal, he just had that massive victory. And now he's in the cave. And the Lord's like, what are you doing here? Right? I mean, for me, that happens. I'll just be vulnerable and, and transparent. The most ways with finances. In 2003, we made a choice to step out in faith and become missionaries, to leave sort of our salary and our, you know, megachurch and come and pray in a room and have people support us and buy into that vision. And you guys, that was hard. But you know what? The Lord met us with favor and supernatural activity. I mean, like bizarre ways, like literally money, cash money blowing against our garage door, blowing in the wind into our bushes, weird stuff. Like I would have dimes show up in diapers. I know that's weird. It's just like the Lord would show us signs. Like he, it's like he had to say, come on, Dohead, I'm faithful. I just want you to remember. And yet still sometimes I would worry. And he's like, what are you doing? Why are you here? Come on, don't you remember? what I did. Don't you remember the, the, the money against the garage? Don't you remember the thousand dollars a day that you, don't you remember? Like, oh yeah, that's right. That's right. Yes. So I'm going to remember. I'm going to step out in faith and actively remember. Because you know what? Or else we can end up in a belly of a whale running from the Lord's calling, running from his provision. That word is in Jonah 2, 7. Jonah's in the belly of the whale, like literally in the fish guts. And he says, oh, when I remembered the Lord, the Lord spoke to the fish and vomited Jonah out onto dry land. So when we remember the Lord with our active engagement, it opens the door for God to move in our life and on our behalf. So I want to look at Luke 4.18 in light of remembering, okay, in light of an active positioning of our hearts for a right response. I don't want to just look at it and go, like as a crazy charismatic, because we have the corner on miracles and all that stuff, right? I don't want to just look at it and go, oh, it's finally time. It's finally time. We're just going to get some popcorn and sit back and watch the show. The miracles are about to start. No, I want to say, God, what are you saying? And how can my, sorry, Lyle, how can my heart respond rightly in this time if you are shining your light on this on this verse. So I want to read Luke 4, 16 through 30, because that's the context, and we have to get the context of Luke 4, 18, okay? So he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, and as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he opened the book, he found the place where it was written. So this is Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty all who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book, he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And all bore witness to him, and they marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Isn't this Joseph's son? And he said to them, You will surely say this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we've heard that was done in Capernaum, do it here. And then he said, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. I tell you, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when heaven was shut up three years and six months. There was a great famine throughout the land, but Elijah was sent to none of them except to Zarephath in the, prophet, or in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, but none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. 
So then all those who in the synagogue, when they heard these things, they were filled with wrath. So now we've gone from marveling to wrath. <laughs> and they rose up and they thrust him out of the city and they led him to the cliff of the hill on which their city was built that they might throw him over. And passing through the midst of them, he went on his way. So let's just talk through that just a second. So he came to Nazareth. That was his home. He grew up with these people. They grew up with him. They knew him. They knew him when he was 12. And he was preaching in the, in the temple, wowing everybody with his amazing revelation and wisdom. Jesus was no stranger to them, nor them to him. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue. So the custom was that every week they would gather, the Jews would gather, and somebody would stand up and read the law and the prophets. So there was a, a portion of scripture assigned for that week to be read. And then somebody, a visiting scholar, or, or maybe just somebody else in the crowd, a, a, a learned one, would, would sit down and just expound on what was just read. So that's what's happening here. So he's handed the book of, of Isaiah, he stands up to read it, he reads it, he sits down, and everybody's looking at him like, whoa, that is amazing. All eyes were fixed on him, it says. So he commanded this authority and respect. And he says to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And what do they do? They're like, wow, they marvel at all the gracious words that are said about him. I mean, can you imagine, because he's saying, Basically, this is fulfilled, like this messianic passage that I just read is fulfilled in me. And they're like marveling, thinking, I mean, could they be thinking, could it be that right here in Nazareth, the Messiah is, is, is coming from, and this is Joseph's son. I mean, they're marveling at this man. And so let's go back, though, for just a second to what he reads. He reads Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. This is a messianic passage. The Messiah is, is going to be anointed and preach the good news to the poor, heal the brokenhearted, set the blind free, set the captives free. Okay? And so it's really a powerful passage, but it's only mostly out of Isaiah 61. In Luke 4.18, the curious thing is that there's a couple different sentence or phrases that are not in Isaiah 61 and when you read commentators they 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 explain that what he's done he stood up to read the passage and then he sat down to teach it he was the learned visitor of the day sitting down to teach the passage and he actually teaches Isaiah 61 from Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 58 what he does is he takes the other scriptures and shines light on Isaiah 61. And we know that because of the phrases that are used. Uh, recovery of sight to the blind. That is not in the original Isaiah 61 passage. It's in Isaiah 42, 7. And in Isaiah 42, that whole chapter, it actually mostly talks about uh, the Messiah coming for the Gentiles. So we know that he's talking here and he's expounding to them, saying, I've come for the Gentiles. The other phrase is to set at liberty those who are oppressed. That's not in Isaiah 61, but it's in Isaiah 58, Isaiah 58, 6. And here's the thing, Isaiah 58 is not actually a happy passage. <laughs> so he was, he was telling them, I am here. All of these things are about to happen because these have been fulfilled in your hearing. But in the context of Isaiah 58, he's saying, guys, you are dripping with religion. You are dripping with, you know, this, this false uh, sense of greatness. But your prayers really aren't being answered because your heart isn't right. You've got to get your heart right so that we can actually see the, the poor being set free and the oppressed uh, being delivered and the blind being able to see because in Isaiah 58 verse 12 it says if you change your heart if you actually will live with authentic faith so that other people can go free then you are going to be called the repairer of the foundations 
and the restorer of the streets. Much like in Isaiah 61, it says, oh, we want to be the repairer of the ruined cities. Well, that ticked them off. <laughs> they weren't so happy about that. And he reads their minds. And he says, listen, you, you, actually, you actually are going to tell me now that you don't really like what I just said, and I, you're going to need a sign. You need a sign and a wonder to know that what I just said was true. He's like, you're going to tell me whatever you did in Capernaum, do it here. If you're really that, if this is really fulfilled in, in our hearing, then, then give us a sign. And he's calling out the secrets and the doubts of their own heart, their demand for a sign, when really, as the Jews, as the chosen ones, they had the law and the prophets, and he was their gift of a sign from his birth. They knew Joseph and Mary. They knew the miraculous angel that had appeared. They knew the story. They knew the controversy surrounding his life and family, and they knew he was the carpenter who, when he hit himself with a hammer, he didn't say a bad word. I mean, let's just be real. This man lived among them as a sign. And what he's saying is, you have the law and the prophets. How do you need a sign? You don't need a sign. The sign was given for the Gentiles, and that's what he says. He's highlighting even the prophets of old, Elijah and Elisha, and he's saying, look, there were a lot of widows in Israel, but we didn't choose, God didn't choose the widows in Israel. He cho chose a Gentile widow. There were a lot of lepers in Israel, but God didn't choose them to heal. He chose a Gentile to give them a sign for what's coming. And he says, listen, you don't need a sign. I'm your sign. Today this is fulfilled in your hearing. So what did the religious people do? The chosen people who he's telling them, look, this actually is bigger than you. This is about the world. This is about me coming, the Father having his inheritance. It says they were filled with wrath. They literally flip-flopped from marveling to wanting to kill this man. So he gave them a sign. You know what he did? He disappeared. He disappeared out of their grip. He, they tried to stone him, and he said, I'm just going to slip out of here miraculously. So as the Lord seems to be shining this spotlight on this Luke 4, 18, this, um, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor, to relieve the brokenhearted, to set, set captives free. My heart just explodes wanting that to happen. And I think it would behoove us to remember the context of Isaiah 58 as well. That the oppressed go free when we actually live with authentic faith so that others can go free that we evaluate our own lives for where we are agreeing with a religious spirit because Jesus warns us in Matthew 16 and in Mark 8, he says, hey, guys, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Beware of that political and religious spirit that can so intertwine with your life and cause your faith to not be active and alive. I mean, I think Luke 4.18 in so many ways is like a promised land verse, you know? Um, for those who were seeking their Messiah, Jesus stood up and said, here it is, I am here. This, this Isaiah 61 messianic promise has been fulfilled in your day. And I think for people like us who have been, who have been praying, for, some of us for decades for an outpouring of the Spirit, to see this kind of thing in action, to see people delivered and, and the oppressed set free in our midst. I think it, this Luke 418 is a promised land kind of verse, like we're standing on the edge of something, right? And so I want to I wanna go back even to that remembering that's called for in Deuteronomy 4.9 when they're standing on the edge of the promised land and Moses gives them instructions for entering in. Because he's giving them those words to remember again. He says, take heed of yourself and diligently keep yourself. What he's saying is evaluate your hearts, guys. Evaluate your own heart. Lest you forget the things your eyes have seen and your ears have heard. And lest those things depart from you all the days of your life. You've got to remember and you've got to tell them to your children and to your grandchildren. Now, can you fathom? Can you fathom? Moses getting up and saying, hey guys, just please don't forget how God led us by a pillar of fire 
you know, at night and a pillar of cloud by day. And remember the Red Sea and how it opened and then it swallowed everybody up? When we got past, and remember the water coming from the rock and the voice coming through the fire? I mean, can you imagine? That'd be kind of like telling Baltimore, hey, just don't forget Lamar Jackson and how he flipped into the end zone. Don't forget. They're not going to forget that. They beat the Chiefs. We want to forget that. They're not going to forget that. Right? I mean, how could they forget such epic stuff, right? The problem is when you get caught up in the spirit of the age and the ways of the world, we forget. We forget. And as they're entering this promised land that they've hoped for, they've longed for, they've, they've gone years and decades in the wilderness for, he's saying the whole purpose of you being in this land is to display my glory, display the glory of a people set apart for me to the whole world. It's not just about you going and eating the grapes and drinking the milk and, you know, the land flowing with milk and honey. It's not just about you enjoying those things. It's actually about being a witness to the world that there's a people and, oh, there's a God in heaven who led these people and he is a God of wonder and a God of mystery. And he actually is seeking their hearts as well. So we, in a similar way, are called to remember, to actively, tangibly manifest his word, his power, his might. As a witness to the poor, the brokenhearted, the blind, the captive, the oppressed. Today this is fulfilled in your hearing, he said. So it's got to be fulfilled now, right? So How? He tells us in John 14, today, truly I say to you that whoever believes in me, whoever believes in me will do greater works. Well, you'll do the works that I do, but you're going to do greater works than I do because I go to the Father. And we have now the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. And this is how we live out Luke 4.18, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And there's a, another whole sermon, I'm sure, on John 14. I just want to touch on that, though. This is how we're empowered to make greater impact. Have you ever pondered that verse, how we're going to do greater works? I mean, this is a man who raised the dead, turned water into wine, calmed the storms, you know, sent a bunch of pigs over a cliff when he cast demons out of a demonic. He's saying you're going to do greater things. I mean, what greater things are there than that, right? I just can't fathom. And I think what he's saying is, actually, you're going to, you're going to make greater impact. You're going to make global impact because my Holy Spirit's dwelling in you to do the very same works that I did. And today, we, we actually can, can do that and step into that as a people. But it starts with the right heart posture, turning people to Jesus. Now, have you ever heard, well, I just don't want to go to church. I've seen what a hot mess y'all are. I just... You know, I don't, need to, I don't need to be involved with church. I know brother so-and-so, and I know what he does, you know, on Friday nights and then shows up on Sunday mornings. Often, we aren't, as the church, displaying the greater works because we're caught up. We're caught up in religious trappings. We're caught up in, you know, Sunday morning you know, going to church, but then being, being owned by the spirit of the age the rest of the week. And the Lord is saying, no, there's more. There's more because Holy Spirit's in you. When our hearts are rightly aligned and the body's working together, when we're all working together in our gifts, the oppressed will go free. We, talk, uh, we talked this week, Rachel uh, and Jennifer Roberts and Sally and I, we got together to talk about this women's gathering uh, this week. And uh, we, we had this prayer meeting. We had these dorky little prayer meetings on Thursday morning. And you guys, I'm calling them like the no makeup prayer meetings because I wear makeup to the prayer meeting and then I cry it off by the end. I mean, it's just, it's like we go to this little studio and Rachel shows up with her guitar and we show up with our hearts, and God shows up. And we just enter in. I mean, Leah, you, there's uh, Carla. I mean, you guys, there's a few of us have been there. It just, there's not very many of us, but God shows up. It's like my favorite time of the week. 
Anyway, after the prayer meeting, we're just chatting about this ladies retreat, ladies gathering. And you know, you guys, I just think, kind of going off, off the ramp here. Sometimes I, I ponder the bridge and go, what are we supposed to be? Because it's so much more than this, right? Like, I love this. I love getting together on Sunday mornings. But it's so much more than this. And I am just sort of in awe and sort of trembling and sort of tilting my head at how the Lord is giving us leadership in the city with this women's thing. Like, in the spring, people came from all over the country. What's up with that? Like, we're just dorky. We worshiped in a barn, and people are coming from all over the country, 10-plus 10, 10 churches from the city represented, people just saying this, thank you. Thank you for doing this. The Lord so met my heart. And then Allison has a vision to do it again, and we're like, okay, we'll give it a go. And already somebody from Washington, D.C. is registered. Like, what is up with that? But here's what I think. I think the Lord is saying, hey, guys, because... It's not just about like a, a song leader and a talking head doing a conference, okay? We are saying, we kind of don't know how to do this, but we're just all going to throw our gifts into the pot, and what we really want is Jesus to come. And he's coming. I mean, it's only the second time we did it. We're doing it. But he, he's meeting us on these Thursday mornings, and so I know he's going to meet us. So I wonder, Lord... What would it be if we all got together and just blessed each other in the gifts that we have and saw what he would want to do for the city? I'm just so moved by that idea, that 1 Corinthians 12 idea. It, it's why church doesn't really work on Zoom. Like, I was so thankful for Zoom, but this is why church doesn't really work on Zoom, because our individual gifts, the, the ones that are kind of talked about in 1 Corinthians 12, we get together and we work together to display his splendor. And then the whole world sees, the whole city sees, the whole city takes note. And then they're like, oh my gosh, I want to be a part of that. Because then we're all up in each other's business, holding each other accountable and, and edifying each other with our own gifts. Because you know what? I'm not all that in a slice of bread. Like, I have gifts. I have a gift of faith. I know that. But when, when I want to go pray for somebody for healing, I take Becky Jackman. Because she has this supernatural gift of faith for healing and, and a gift of healing. Like, when I want to get something done uh, for hospitality, I mean, I, I sort of like that, and I have an eye for beauty, but my gosh, I'll call Janet or Allison or Becky. I mean, uh, Rachel, you have this gift of faith in the prophetic in song, but more than that, I, Carla, the prophetic gift rests upon you. Like, if I'm going to go pray for people, I want Carla. You know what this girl did the other day? Oh, my gosh. I'm, I'm just going to brag on you for a minute. I'm not just bragging. I'm just I'm giving you an example. We're at this prayer meeting. She leaves the prayer meeting with her five-week-old baby or however old she was at the time, six, seven. I don't know. I lose track. And she, she's texting us going, hey, would you pray for me? I just picked up a hitchhiker. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, she just, I just want to spank her right now. She can't pick up a hitchhiker with a baby. I just picked up a hitchhiker, and she's, she's really in need. I think she's homeless. And takes her home gives her a little something to eat, lets her take a nap, and then they minister to her, and they, take, they actually plug her into resources. Come on, you guys, that is amazing. That is amazing. That is kind of the gift at work that we need to be doing together to see our city set free, right? So we're just sitting around on Thursday going, we, we, gotta, we gotta see um, how the Lord wants this ladies gathering to, to come together and somebody I don't know maybe it was Sally said but it's it's body it's like the body ministry and that's what we're going to do we're going to you know it, we're not just going to have Rachel get up there and sing and have somebody get up and speak we're kind of kind of experiment with some maybe Hebraic values I don't know just kind of jumping all in there and seeing how it's going to work but I believe that when we work together we're going to manifest the mystery of the gospel and, and when we do that, Ephesians 3.10 says, we're, 
we're going to actually preach even to the principalities and powers when we get together. That's revival. You know what? When demons tremble, that's revival. When people get set free, that's revival. When all the gifts point to Jesus, that's revival. When we have an environment where people can be set free, darkness flees, the blind can see, that's revival. And, and above all of that is love, right? The greatest work is love. So that's what we want to press into Luke 4.18 with that heart of love, that honest evaluation of our own hearts and just pressing in for all the gifts to be used. Can you imagine this epic community of faith doing the greater works of love as a witness to the whole city and the heavenly realm? I mean, I think that's the Luke 4.18 dream. And it's for the bridge and beyond, remembering with active, engaged hearts and doing this stuff in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what I want to be about. But I can't do it by myself. I got to do it with you. We got to do this stuff together, right? So our city has this rich history. I'm going to kind of close with a couple of stories here and just see what the Lord wants to do. I kind of know what he wants us to do. I think he wants to do us to do this stuff. But Kansas City has this unique, rich history of the people of God living out the greater works to see the oppressed set free and the ruins transformed like Isaiah 58 and 61 talk about. There was a woman back in the 1800s. Her name was Margaret Armour. And she, out of her heart of faith, started an orphan's home, a home for orphans, this big old mansion that she just housed those who, who were fatherless and motherless in this home. And you guys, it's actually still there today. It's, n it's not under the same organization, but it's still there. That because of this woman, we now have Cornerstones of Care, who, who takes care of foster kids all over the city. In 1880, Reverend Henry Hopkins became the pastor of the first congregational church. And back in the late 1800s, we were kind of a cow town. We were kind of a mess, okay? Kansas City was not a pretty place to come. People did not come here for the, for the geography. It was more for the gambling and the, you know, it's kind of a rough place. But Pastor Hopkins believed that our Christian faith should affect every sphere of society and life. And he preached this sermon. It was really a sermon that changed Kansas City. And he preached, well, here's a little bit of what he said. He said, we've got to have faith to advance the history of the world, to make the gospel felt in government, education, art, commerce, industry, that the kingdom of heaven would come into this world. He inspired his entire congregation to greater work. Sitting in that congregation that day, was August Meyer. You've probably heard of Meyer. You probably drive down Meyer Boulevard. August Meyer, out of, out of that sermon, he formed the park board and he began to beautify Kansas City. In that, in that sermon, hearing that sermon that day was Thomas Swope, who donated a bunch of land to Kansas City so we would be beautiful. And we still, we still actually are enjoying the effects of that sermon today. If you enjoy just spreading out your blanket under a tree, tree at Swope Park, it's because Pastor Hopkins had faith to believe that Christians and the gospel could actually make a city beautiful. I mean, actually, his whole sermon caught wind in the nation, and it started this movement called the City Beautiful Movement. Guys, the gospel made Kansas City beautiful, and we need to take that baton today. Another story from the Kansas City Archives just deeply touches my heart. And you guys, if you guys want to come on back up, you can. And it's the story of a woman named Annie Chambers. This was a woman who knew hardship. Okay, she was a young woman, uh, became a widow, very young. She lost two children, so she lost her husband and two children. And out of that dark place, she was driven by fear into prostitution and actually prospered. She prospered in that life financially. She had a very prosperous brothel down in what we would call the city market area. 
She bought this beautiful mansion, 24-room mansion that she turned into a brothel, would send invitations out to the businessmen at their workplaces. She sure did. She was so zealous for her craft that at age 79, she, she went to the Missouri Supreme Court to actually keep her brothel open, and she won. I mean, this was a spunky little old woman. Now, around the same time, a pastor and his wife moved in to that area. Pastor David Bulkley and his wife Beulah and their little girl, they were brave. They bought this big mansion right next door, also a formal brothel, the Lovejoy Mansion, right next door to Annie Chambers. And they started ministering. They just started serving the poor. Uh, ministering to the homeless, ministering to the needy. They would preach sermons open air in their yard. And, and one day they were ministering to a woman uh, who had lost her little girl, little, little child, and did her funeral. And Annie Chambers heard that sermon sitting by her window. And later, a little bit later, she, there was a big fire down the street and all the neighbors came out because that's what you do when the house is on fire you get out and go down and watch the fire and she saw Annie saw Beulah Bulkley and she said hey I, I want to meet you I've been watching you and I want you to be my friends she's 81 at this point and so Pastor David and Beulah, they start ministering to her, bringing her meals. They lead her to Christ. They disciple her at 81. Transform her life. Jesus transforms her life. And at 92, she dies and she leaves her brothel to the City Union Mission. Again, today we're, we're seeing the effects of a family that, that gave it all up, moved to the brothel district, said, we're just going to serve the poor. We're just going to do this stuff. And our city has changed because of that. I want to be a community whose lives inspire faith and who people come to us and say, I've been watching you. And I want you to be my friends. I want the bridge to be that, don't you? Let's just stand together and worship and respond to the Lord. Father, we love you. We, we are so thankful that you're shining the light on the promise of Luke 4.18 for our day. We so want to be a people engaged in that anointing of the Spirit of the Lord upon us to preach good news to the poor, to see the brokenhearted set free, to see the oppressed run and be delivered, to see the blind see and the captives let out of their prison cells. God, we want to be those who are rep repairers of the breach, transformers of a city. So we recognize that you're shining your light on us today, on the city of Kansas City, on the church in Kansas City and beyond. And we say yes, God, we want to...